0: scripture reading today is from 1 Peter 1, to 1-2 and can be found on page 1014 of the Pew Bibles. Would you please stand with me out of reverence for God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Pithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's word. Please be seated. I wish I could have preached this sermon right up front because those songs are so meaningful to me knowing what's coming as we unfold this passage because they truly spoke of the message that today about our identity as those chosen by God and how that impacts the way we live to be conquerors for Jesus Christ in this world through the redemptive work of Christ, forgiveness we find in Him, and the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. Um, in many ways, you've had the sermon, uh, but we have a few minutes to kill, so I'll still <laughs> preach. <clears throat> this morning, we begin a study in First Peter entitled Reflecting Christ in a Post-Christian Culture. Many of us grew up in a culture that embraced the Christian worldview, including traditional values, belief in God, and trust in the Bible as the Word of God. Today, these are being challenged, denied, and supplanted. A number of books have come onto the market and that hold Christianity in contempt, and they've become very popular. In addition, we find that religious rights are being overturned in lower courts. Most of academia, the media, and Hollywood walk locks in step with humanism, and the values that our culture has held for many years are now being seen as antiquated and harmful. Even those who call themselves Christian are moving toward an understanding of God that is built on their personal preferences rather than on revelation from god a 2009 study showed that although 76 percent of americans called themselves christians only nine percent held christian worldviews, and among those age 18 to 23 that drops to .5 percent of that age group hold a Christian and biblical worldview. Post-Christianity is most dominant right where we live. According to the 2017 Barna study, eight of the top 10 most post-Christian cities are in New England or the Northeast. Boston sits at number two behind the Portland main area. On top of this, Christians are being more and more marginalized. We don't know what the future holds. I don't think real persecution is on our horizon, but I do believe Christians will be more and more marginalized. So. how are we going to live in this post-Christian culture? That's what Peter addresses. But I say we don't need to fear. For whatever comes our way is an opportunity because the darker it becomes, the more brilliantly the light of Christ can shine. That's really the message that Peter brings in 1 Peter. He writes a letter to five Roman colonies who are being ostracized, mistreated, and persecuted. And he has called them to live lives that reflect Jesus Christ and then he shows them the way in which that will happen. Today, America is being torn apart intolerance, acrimony, judgmentalism and hatred is growing. America needs a light that shines, grace, understanding, peace, righteousness, hope and sacrificial love. America needs the light of Jesus Christ lived out through believers. Let's pray. Our Father, may our messages be very true to those that Peter brings these Roman cities and communities. Let us hear what you have to say to the Church of Jesus Christ. May your spirit work that into our lives, and may we reflect Jesus Christ. Amen. So Peter begins his letter with a very ordinary greeting. He names the author, which is Peter himself, the recipients who are the Christians who are scattered through Pontius. Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then gives brings a a normal salutation of grace and peace. But this introduction is much more than simply setting the stage for the letter. It is jam-packed with truth that is necessary for us to live the Christian life. In many ways, Peter is setting the table for the rest of the book. And he begins by speaking of the identity of Christians. Now, he begins with our identity because identity drives the way people live. When you know who you are, you know how to live. And and we see that played out in many arenas today. Black power celebrates race. It came into being because of the persecution of blacks. It moved out into the civil rights and comments like black is beautiful. The women's movement saw injustices and so they came together around an identity of being a woman. And one of the things I remember them saying is, I am woman, hear me roar. And their identity was found in being a woman, and they wanted to roar. They wanted their voices to be heard. Gay pride. Because of homosexuals being oppressed and so many of them feeling that. They developed a movement out of which they could have pride about who they are and also face injustices that they had endured. White supremacy built on the color of skin. And if you're white, you're better than others, and you have the right to oppress others. Many of these movements have done good things, but they all fall short because they live out of only one characteristic of their lives. The result is they set themselves apart, often trying to feel better than other people. And their agenda revolves around their identity, not everyone. Now, I I bring these up not to criticize them in any way, but to show the connection between when we understand our identity, we live out of our identity and we promote that identity and we have agendas that flow from that identity. Peter offers a greater identity than any of these. An identity that flows from grace and love. And when you grab that identity, it leads to humility, not pride. It leads to desiring everybody to be included, not people excluded because they're not in the, your group. And an agenda that benefits everyone, not just those who are like you. And so, Peter is going to give us the identity, but first we see in Peter himself that truth that an identity can drive the way you live. Peter wasn't always called Peter. He was called Simon. But Jesus Christ gave him a new name. And he said, you are Cephas. You are Peter. You are the rock. And when God gives a name, That name gives an identity. Abram is changed to Abraham, father of a nation. Jacob is changed to Israel, the one who wrestles with God. Simon is changed to Peter. He is a rock. But he didn't always live up to that identity. When the pressure came, when Jesus had been arrested and he followed Jesus around a charcoal fire, he was asked, or challenged, you're a follower of Jesus. And he denied Jesus three times. Later, in another charcoal fire, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus restores him. And three times he says, I love you, I love you, I love you. And out of that identity, Peter became a rock. He and Paul, or the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. It's very appropriate that he writes this letter because he failed in his identity, found grace, and then lived out his identity, giving us all hope that we can live out the identity God gives us. So what is that identity? We see it says... Peter to God's elect, chosen by the foreknowledge of God. So if you were to ask the question of yourself, who am I, what would your answer be? And I doubt that anyone here, including me, would say, I am the elect of God. I'd like to say I'm the loved of God, but I probably wouldn't say I'm the elect of God because, one, it raises a couple of questions, troublesome questions. Being elect means that it's part of the doctrine of election and predestination. That God chooses beforehand those who are going to be saved. And that's troublesome because it, initially sounds like we don't have free will, we don't have choice, that we're just robots. But we see over and over again, God holds us accountable for our personal choices. In John chapter 3, God so loved the world. And it says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, The world was condemned. He sent his son into the world to save it. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So God says, you have a choice. And if you choose not to believe in Jesus Christ, who is the only way to God, you are condemned. So, election does not mean we're robots. We all have the choice and we are held accountable for it. The problem is, how do these two things fit together? And the answer is, I don't know. It's something beyond me. But what I take solace in is uh, Deuteronomy 29.29 29 said, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. He's saying two things here: is There are some things that are revealed, and we are to live by those revelations, we'll live by what God says. And in this case, God reveals two things. He has chosen some for salvation. And everybody is accountable for their personal choices, so it means we need to go out and evangelize. People need to hear to believe. At the same time, we need to realize that if we fail to tell someone, they're not lost because of that. So we, we try to live out these two truths. The secret things belong to God. How these two truths fit together are secret. They belong to God. One, one theologian uh, put it this way, you might see two ropes hanging from a ceiling and if you pull one, the other one moves and you pull the other one and that one moves and you say, I don't understand. These are two independent ropes. I don't know how they fit together, how they impact each other. But he said, if you look above the ceiling, there's, there's the wheel and the rope is over that. So they're connected, but it's something we don't see. And so how these two truths fit together, we don't see and understand. And we shouldn't expect to understand everything that God says, because he's God and and we're not. A second aspect that can be troubling with this doctrine is the fact that when God chooses some, he doesn't choose everyone. Everyone. And again, I don't have an answer for that. That's very troubling to me. And I think if if a humanist starts with, with that teaching, they often conclude that God is a monster. but as I said a few weeks ago, but if we look at the cross and begin at the cross and we see the love of Christ and all that Christ and the Father endured, we realize that God is love. And though we don't understand how every commandment, how every doctrine is an expression of love, we can trust that they all are i have some conjectures of how this is loving but we don't really have the time to go into those and they are just my conjectures but i work with this doctrine by looking at the cross and seeing that god is love so why does peter emphasize election rather than say the love of god Uh, john when you read the Gospel of John, you see that John's identity is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never names himself, and the reason is his identity is in the name, so he always gives his identity, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And certainly, being beloved of God is much more, is warmer and much more comforting than thinking of um, the elect of God. But I think he chooses elect, because for two reasons. One, it's a much more expansive word than loved. Because it begins at the even before we are born, God has begun to work by choosing us. And as Romans 8:29 says, "For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So the concept of election begins before we are born and goes all the way through, it guarantees all the way through our glorification in Christ and oversees the entire process of God making us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Second reason I think he chooses it, is because of the emphasis of the expanse of God's love throughout our Christian life. It says here, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. We see that in Romans 8. We see it also in 1 Peter. You are the elect chosen by God according to foreknowledge. Now, a lot of people don't understand this doctrine of foreknowledge. Uh, Foreknowledge includes the idea that God knows certain events beforehand. And so there are those who see foreknowledge as God looked at me and he could see back down that that in 1973, in March of 1973, Bruce Daggett is going to believe in me. So I have that knowledge, so I'll choose him before he's born. Now, the first problem with that is it truly makes election meaningless, the whole concept of meaningless. Why would God have to choose me if I'm choosing him anyway? But also, it doesn't address the full understanding of the word. Remember, in Romans 8, it says, For whom he foreknew." those whom, he doesn't say for the information he understands about us. It says the people he foreknew. And what it means is that God has an intimate knowledge of us, relationship with us, even before the foundation of the world. It's a word know. Do you know me? Do I know you? See, Tom Brady, I can say You know, I know lots of facts about him. I've seen him play game after game on TV. He's better than Peyton Manning. (laughs) I know a lot about his social life because it's it's all over. I've seen his personality. I don't know Tom Brady. I don't have a relationship with him. To know someone is is a relationship. Ephesians 1, I think, gives the best sense of what we mean by foreknowledge. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. When we begin to think that God's love isn't just right now, but God's love for us began before we were ever created and it will go forever. And we can never, ever be separated from that love. There's a song that captures this. I was in his mind before the worlds were made. I was in his mind before earth's frame was laid because he knew me, because he loved me. I was in his thoughts the night he prayed for me. I was in his thoughts before Gethsemane because he saw me, because he loved me. I am in his mind, or I was in his heart when Calvary's hill he climbed. I was in his heart when he died for all mankind because he sought me, because he loved me. I am in his mind, and soon he'll come for me. I am in his mind with him in heaven to be because he wants me, because he loves me. That's the identity that we have in Jesus Christ. And that identity not only drives our lives, but it becomes the secure base upon which we live our lives. And what do I mean by secure base? uh, John Bowlby, who is well known for parent-child attachment, the importance of the love relationship, and that children aren't going to thrive in life without that deep attachment and love relationship with somebody. And, of course, it should be a parent. And what he says in his book, Secure Base, is he talks about how a child, when they have a love relationship that they can count on and depend on and know is not going to be broken, they can go out and venture into the world and explore life because they know no matter what happens, they have that secure base and the love of a father or a mother you perhaps you've seen it on the playground you see a, a little girl and she's very close to her mother and she, everyone else is playing and she watches them but she stays close to her mother and then she starts to venture out uh, she looks back make sure her mom's there goes a little further starts playing more she looks back her mom's there and all of a sudden she doesn't look back that much, and starts to enjoy everything in the playground because she has that secure base. See, the election of believers gives us that secure base. And the readers in 1 Peter, that are addressed in 1 Peter, need a secure base. They are ostracized, They are mistreated. They will be persecuted. And we know how bad that persecution will eventually become. They need a secure base of love from which they can go out and be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Their identity gives them that secure base. That identity propels them to go out and live for Jesus Christ. That's why Peter Lays it out right here at the beginning. It also says that they are strangers in the world. I just got back late last night from uh, Spain. My wife went over there for a course that BC uh, had given her a grant for. I felt like a stranger there. I don't know the language, uh, so when I tried it, I got these strange looks that uh, didn't, I didn't feel very comfortable with that. And then, uh, you know, the culture is different, because when I went to the ice cream shop and I, they said, do you want a, a bowl or a cone, I said, true Karen, I'll have a bowl with a cone on top. And they looked at me like, what in the world are you talking about? It's so, uh, you go to a different culture, you, you feel different, you feel as an outsider. And Peter's saying, because you're a citizen of heaven, this world is not your home. You have an entirely different culture than the world you're living in. You have a different perspective, you have different values, you have a different foundation for life, you have a different purpose, you have a different goal, you are completely different from everyone. So don't be surprised when people think you're very different, and don't be surprised when they treat you differently. And don't be surprised if you're not like them, that you get ostracized and mistreated. We need to know we are the elect of God. We are beloved. That can't be taken from us. We need that as the secure base to go into a culture that's very different from us, will look at us very strangely sometimes, will not understand us. We're strangers in this world. And it says they're dispersed or scattered. Now, this word is pregnant with meaning because it's what happened in the book of Acts. Jesus told his disciples to go out to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and what we see is they stay in Jerusalem, they're not going out. And so persecution comes, and they're now dispersed. They're scattered out into the other regions, and what do they do? They become the light of Christ, and they share Christ and the gospel and begin to impact those areas. And so they are the elect who are strangers who are being sent out. They're scattered now into five different Roman provinces for the same purpose. You think of the word scattering seeds. You're throwing those seeds out there. And so these are Christians who are being scattered. They're being put out as seeds out of which plants can grow and bear fruit. That's who they are. That's who we are. And so our identity propels the way we live. And so Paul gives us a little bit of insight into the way that we're going to live. Of course, he's going to unpack that in detail in the, up the rest of the letter. But he gives some principles to, to build on. Notice it says, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ in the sprinkling of His blood. So you have the, your identity is found in who God is, but when God chooses us, we come to faith, God gives us a very special gift, and that's the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who is going to oversee the entire process. He's going to be a part of, he's going to be ministering the entire process of our beginning in Jesus Christ to the culmination of our glorification. You know, um, I don't notice notice the colors sometimes change on the cloth up there. Uh, We try to go with uh, the liturgical calendar and... uh, Right now, that cloth is supposed to be green. Uh, Green for Christian growth. This is a period where we focus on Christians grow. Uh, I like to leave red up there because it speaks of the Holy Spirit. We put it up on Pentecost. We're supposed to take it down after one day and then talk about our growth. But I think this passage says, our growth is all about the work the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. And I hope every time you look at a red up on the cross, you say, I've got the Holy Spirit who wants to work in me. And when I walk in Him, He will do a transforming work of sanctification. Sanctification means set apart, it's the same base word for holiness. And holiness essentially is becoming the people God wants us to be. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us to faith. He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And when you realize you're a sinner, and God judges sin, and that you're not as righteous enough to save yourself, you're going to say, I need someone to save me. I need a Savior. And then the Holy Spirit points out, that Savior died on the cross for you. But he doesn't stop the work there. He now comes to live within us, to encourage us. He's a paraclete, meaning to come alongside. He's called alongside of us to encourage us and to challenge us. To challenge us to become more like Jesus Christ and he ministers in us to do that. Uh, One of the commentators, Edwin Bloom, describes it in this way. The sanctifying of the Spirit is his operation of applying the work of redemption to the Christian. You got that? All he's saying is, the Holy Spirit has come to take what the gospel and put that into our lives. See, sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit like he came upon Samson. (laughs) Um... He comes upon Samson, and Samson gets this physical strength to win every battle, and we think, well, that's the Holy Spirit's ministry is to come on us and just empower us to to follow God and to live out that Christian life. It's not the way he does it. What he does is he takes the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, Ephesians says, is the Word of God. He takes the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he applies that to every area of our lives. And we'll unpack that in the future messages. But that's the work. God elects the Holy Spirit, sanctifies, applying the work of the cross. And then it says that this is for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. This gives us the goal and the process Of the Christian life. The goal is obedience to Christ. Notice it doesn't say obedience to the Mosaic laws or obedience to the commandments in general. It says obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, Christ has a new law it's the law of love. And he's asked the question what's the greatest commandment he says to love god with all your heart to love your neighbor as yourself And every commandment flows from those two that's what it's about it's not about the external life it's about the transformation of the inside to make us be the lovers that jesus christ is when christ preached the sermon on the mount he blew away the jewish religious community because he offered them something new. It wasn't about keeping the commandments on the outside. It wasn't about, I don't murder. It was about the dynamic of what was happening inside. Do you have anger inside your heart? It wasn't about, don't commit adultery. It was about what's going on in your heart. Is there lust in your heart? It was about character qualities. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Obedience to Jesus Christ is essentially becoming like Christ. Loving God like he loves God. Loving others like he loved others. The transformation of the heart. Now, we're all going to fail and stumble trying to live like Jesus Christ. That's why the sprinkling of his blood is stated here. Yes, Christ's blood Christ's death on the cross covers all of our sin in a positional way uh, a judicial way but there's also a family way when we sin we break fellowship with God just like if uh, in a family if a child is hurtful for to a parent that relationship is strained for a while but that child never stops being a child of that parent And so we will stumble, but the beauty is the blood of Jesus Christ is always there to forgive us. We have never been so defeated that we are hopeless. And I trust that there's no one here who feels they have failed so much they are hopeless. I've run into people who feel that way. You're never hopeless. Jesus Christ is there. If we walk as he is in the light, the blood of Christ continually cleanses us. And then if Jesus points, if the Holy Spirit points out a sin we need to address, if we confess that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now these next two words in the salutation, grace and peace, are gigantic because they tell the ultimate uh, environment, the ultimate uh, desire for the way we live in, the w- in that word peace, and the ultimate way in which we gain that peace, grace. Uh, we will unpack that in the future, not next week, but we'll roll the truths in uh, about grace and peace down the road. But I do want to mention it right now that these words are... Packed with meaning. A generation ago, Carrie Livgren from a group called uh, Kansas wrote a song. It goes this way Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground though we refuse to see dust in the wind all we are is dust in the wind dust in the wind all we are is dust in the wind you see Kerry was facing something most people wouldn't face and that's why he has the words we refuse to see that apart from God our identity is very temporary. It's ultimately dust in the wind because everything crumbles to the ground. I think Kerry facing reality opened him up to discussions with a member of a different band who told him about a different identity, one in Jesus Christ. It isn't dust in the wind. It's a choice of God, of love, from before creation to beyond creation. He took that new identity and his life was transformed. God offers that to everyone. If you're here right now, Is your identity something that is ultimately dust in the wind? Or do you know, can you hear this morning that God's love is reaching out to you? It's displayed on the cross. It's displayed in his gift of the Holy Spirit. It's it's displayed in the ultimate culmination of history with a new creation. God offers you that today. believer, we live in a culture that could very well turn more and more against us. We will be tempted to accommodate ourselves to that culture for acceptance. But we need not to, because we have acceptance and love in the Creator Himself that is incomprehensible. You were in his mind before the world was made. You were in his mind when he was praying in Gethsemane. You were in his mind when Calvary's hill he climbed. You were in his mind today, tomorrow, and forever. Our Father, we thank you for your truths, which did help transform a world 2,000 years ago. Lord, let us embrace the future you have. Hear these words. Be grounded in who you are. And then live out the life of Jesus Christ before a world that desperately needs it. Amen.